IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we look at the upcoming music festival season for 2021, which is actually going to be a thing it seems. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? <laughs> you know, this past week, I've been reflecting on the importance of our name, IndieCast. Like, how strong of a brand it is. It's like, in, in, in my yes. mind, it's like Metallica, or like Deftones, or like <laughs> any of those ska bands that have the word ska in their name. It's like, no matter, like, we could do, we could tackle any number of subjects, uh, you know, in our banter section or what have you. But like at the end of the day, we Absolutely. always know what our true north is. And I think that's become extremely important uh, as I've seen in the past week whenever one of, I guess, our colleagues who would otherwise consider themselves maybe more of an indie writer starts to cover pop music. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. And it, it's dangerous. It's dangerous yeah. out there for and, critics. You know, right I'm now. not even sure if like we should even like, begin to cover this kind of topic just kind of you know what, what's been on our minds like uh, of late which um you know i think you and i have both seen one of our friends and colleagues uh, keith harris um like many of our colleagues have to go private uh after they decided to dip their toe in the uh pop album well not just the reviewing pop album game but like being a critic of pop music thing and not being like, but not too harsh, not too harsh. Yeah. It's like that. It's, it's that 6.5 ish, two and a half, three star range that gets people in trouble. Right. Exactly. Or even giving, well, we should step back here for a moment. We're referring to this story. (laughs) Uh, there's a, there's a uh, music writer named Keith Harris. He wrote a review for Rolling Stone of the new, Demi uh, Lovato album, which I don't know the name of. Yes. It's, it's like a long title. It's very long. It's very long. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll just call it the De- the Demi Lovato album. And uh, yes. Keith reviewed it. I think he gave it three stars, or Rolling Stone, I'm sure, gave mm-hmm. it three stars. And he just wrote the review, and the magazine put the re- the star rating on it. And like the stands went berserk. Uh, apparently, they like manufactured um, like fake tweets that were they did. were offensive. Uh, trying to get Keith canceled, I know that the mm-hmm. that the Pitchfork writer who reviewed the album, like uh, Quinn, Quinn, Moreland. Quinn Moreland, I think she had to like lock down her account. I think she had already been private due to a previous review okay. of a pop artist whose name I can't recall. And by the way, the name of the record itself is "Dancing with the Devil," comma comma comma. No, sorry, "Dancing with the Devil," ellipses. The artist starting over. Oh, it would, I was hoping it was the triple comma because that would be because yeah, uh, I'm a fan of egregiously pretty... bad punctuation in uh, <laughs> album titles. That would have been a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've seen this happen numerous times. Uh, you know, I, there was the Taylor Swift debacle with folklore. Jillian oh, yeah. uh, Mapes, I think, wrote the review for Pitchfork of that. I, did. I believe that album got like an 8.0. Which eight point oh the 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 uh, the uh, gentleman's best new music <laughs> yeah it didn't it didn't get best new music but it got an eight but even an eight was not yes. enough uh, for these uh, for these people and um, I mean I was uh, looking at some of these accounts 
the other day some of these Demi Lovato, like, basically troll accounts. Because I really think that the people who drive this are basically trolls. I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily, I don't really believe that this reflects the majority of Demi Lovato fans out there or Taylor Swift fans or whoever it may be. But, like, these people, they post, like, every five minutes. And they're obsessed with, like, sales figures and chart placement and, like, Metacritic scores. Yeah, which is the most bizarre part of it all. Like, um, I know with uh, Taylor Swift, a lot of that was based around, um, you know, what an 8.0 would do to her Metacritic score, which is, like, really stolen valor to me. Like, that's, like, something we're supposed to be concerned about. Like, whether... You know, like a three-star review of like a Wild Pink album is not is going to reflect what we think is not a accurate reflection of like how good that is. It's like the chart part I understand. Like I know that's been something that's come up a lot. Like and oftentimes pop artists will enlist their fan armies to drive up sales. I know the Barb's Nicki Minaj's fan base was big on that and. Yeah, the the fact that they are so like that, that's so weird. Yeah. To, it, it's very sports, you know. There's a very sports, yeah. uh, you know, fanatic mentality here. Where it, <laughs> if you win the charts, you win music for some yeah. reason. And I I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's always been that way. But uh, the degree to which people who are fans are invested in this uh, seems. Uh, I mean, again, maybe it was always the same and we just have Twitter now and people can express how they yeah. feel and we're just hearing this more. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of that element. Uh, you know, I, I was talking about this a little bit with someone on Twitter the other day about, you know, people were saying like, well, you know, it, it's so much worse now with, with, with pop stars. You know, maybe people shouldn't even review these albums. And I said, well, nah. I said, for one thing, you can't really ignore the most popular stuff in the middle. It'd be like saying, I'm not going to... If you're a film critic, you're not going to write about Marvel movies or something. I mean, you kind of have to acknowledge it in some way. But also, I feel like, um, I mean, the problem, I don't know, I feel like it's not pop music, it's it's social media. It's that people yeah. <laughs> can uh, voice how they feel immediately, and it, also that negativity creates a wave of negativity. It feeds other people's uh mm. trolling if you see some if you see one person do it you feel like I can do it too and it just snowballs and it falls on these poor writers <laughs> who again like they're not even um I didn't read Keith's review but just knowing his writing I'm sure he was thoughtful in his review I'm sure he wasn't belittling her or anything I think that's that was the accusation from some of her fans um you know, even like a thoughtful review is going to generate this type of anger. Uh, that's a weird place to be in here. Yeah. And, you know, I thought to myself, like, because I, I, I've reviewed, I've reviewed some pop artists like back in the day. Like, I, I am so grateful that like my influence or my sphere as a critic has reduced to the point where I'm not covering that stuff because, you know, I still get every now and again some like, emails from like Kid Cudi fans or like people who were like back when I reviewed the weekend's Kiss Land, I got like a few people who were, you know, doing the usual stuff like, you know, Virgin living in your parents' basement, like every now and again, some childish Gambino fans pop up. But um yeah, I, I that that to me is a decidedly old school form of like trolling. Like I, it's always 
two in the morning from like an e- it's an email address, you know. Right. Back in the day, it was always like two in the morning from like a dot edu address. And it's like okay, cool, drunk college kids that I can deal. And that's with, okay. Yeah. You know? you know, if you're a writer, yeah. I think that's you got to expect that. But yeah, this thing like where yeah. hundreds of people are um, actually making up tweets about you yeah to try oh, to like, that is scary yeah that, that's the part that spooks me <laughs> yeah i mean that is genuine uh, intimidation like taken to another level i you know I, I was thinking about this because um you know if you are a writer of any kind you have any kind of platform i think getting piled on is um a rite of passage i, I was I, <laughs> I was trying to think like like when was the last time you were piled on for something you wrote do you remember? Um, you know the, uh, I, probably things I'd rather not like discuss. I don't, but it was like it was not for like a pop artist. It was like for, um, you know, some like indie band, and I spoke like problematically about something, like doing some things where I'm like, yeah, that was like kind of a shitty take on things, and um, it's it, it's usually at a point where I can actually like talk to the artist directly. Um, and hash things out. And I've had like some good conversations about those things. Um, but I think what gets lost in a lot of these conversations about like, um, you know, fan armies or stan armies or whatever is that, uh, it can happen for people who write about like indie bands and, you know, if if it's, if they speak what they feel is out of line, then it can be just as bad for them. Yeah, I mean, um, so it's it's not just a trip. Like, it's not just pop artists because like people would be like, oh, we should stop covering pop bands, and you know their fans are so it's so toxic. But in reality, it's like anybody who finds like offense with any critic, which is like the history of criticism. Like people evoke like what Teddy Roosevelt said about you know it's not the critic in the arena. Um, right. You know, I don't know what critics were reviewing back in his day. Like maybe like I don't know rodeos or whatever, but. <laughs> Yeah, no matter, like, if you put your opinion out there, which is ironic because the critic is putting themselves in the arena just by nature of, like, writing, so... Well, especially if you're writing about something that's really popular, because, I mean, like, my biggest pylon ever was when I wrote my thing about Colin Jost a couple years ago, and Uh. and Michael (laughs) Michael Che came after me, and... Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, he actually, like, went on Wikipedia and, like, wrote some things about me. Like, that that kind of... He was, Damn. like, my own biggest troll in that instance. But, you know, I got, you know, like, a ton of tweets sent out, you know, after me. I mean, there is this it thing. It sucks, man. Yeah, it's awful. It is really bad. And there is this, uh, you know, certain kind of Twitter user who I don't know what is in their mind if they think, like, oh, if I stand up for Michael Che or I stand up for like Demi Lovato or Taylor Swift that like somehow they're going to see that tweet and they're going to like want to hang out with me. Like there's this like weird kind of toady mentality yeah. with some people like where, you know, they just feel like they have to go after somebody who is already getting piled on because uh-huh. it's like they're trying to ingratiate themselves to this famous person who like yeah. is never going to care or know who they are. Um, I don't know. It's like you're you're rewarded in heaven or something like that. I mean, it, <laughs> there's like a real, it's like a re, it's a religious component to it. Uh, but also, I mean, it's you're right. It's like sports as well. It's like why is this person like attaching their entire identity to a you know a, a team in a city they happen to be born in and whose roster <laughs> changes over like every several years and like a guy will leave if you know he gets more money from a different city. Um, 
I don't know. There, there's a lot of fascinating psychological um, components to fandom. Um, but you know what? At the end of the day, um, I think we have to consider ourselves pretty lucky that IndieCast, just by nature of our name and our mailbag, is pretty self-selecting about the people we interact yes, with. Yes, that, that is the benefit of uh, talking about artists who don't have huge fan bases sometimes because you, yeah. you feel like you're not going to run afoul of, of these fan armies. I mean... What do you think is a, is a solution to this? I mean, people. There was a story I think in the Independent where uh, I think it was Ra- yeah. Rachel Brodsky wrote this piece yes, where she, she was saying that mm-hmm. like pop stars should tell their fans to stand down, which I am skeptical about whether that would even yeah, work. Yeah, that ain't or, gonna or that ain't gonna work if they would <laughs> actually do that. I mean, because on some level, this helps them. I mean, the, not the harassment part, but as you were saying yeah. before, this mobilization to get people to i guess excessively stream these songs so that they do better on the charts i mean i guess that's the idea with a lot of this boosterism that happens around the time of album releases uh, which again seems very weird to me but there is something i guess beneficial to that if you're a big pop star i just wonder yeah i mean this this isn't very realistic either in the current landscape but like it seems like the only solution is for writers to not be on twitter you know, I, but, and again, it doesn't seem very, very realistic because I think for most writers, you have to be on social media in order to network yeah. and get jobs. I, I, I would say that was true for, uh-huh. like, I don't think I would be where I was without social media. A writer living in the middle of the country, you know, who doesn't work in New York or work for any of the big, you know, music publications, if you're not in that world in person, if you're not on social media, there's no way you're going to have yeah. any access to editors or writers or anyone with prominence to get your name out yeah. there. But I just wonder, I mean, to me, that seems like the only way to avoid this. Like, if you're not on Twitter, yeah. you won't have people attacking you on Twitter. Uh, or you just won't know about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is, uh, that. that's a, that's always, that. Uh, it's funny because I used to have this mentality of like, oh, it's good to hear from people like who don't like your work. Because it it prevents yeah. you from being in a bubble, and I got over that a long time ago. Because I'm like, yeah, that's not at all true. No, it's not. It's like I'm already, I'm already, I already have a negative voice in my head that doesn't like me, and it, and it's called me. Okay, like yeah, I'm, I'm my own biggest troll. I don't need other people in my head telling me that I suck. Yeah, I mean, but I, for me, it like I'm on there because like who the fuck else am I going to discuss this kind of stuff with? Like in my life, I spend. You know, most I spend most of my day amongst people who, you know, are actual Demi Lovato fans. um, And it's like, who am I going to share rap memes with, you know? And also, how am I going to find out about like what's really happening in like the world that I follow? Like it, it, like I've thought many times about, you know, at this point in my career, can I get off Twitter? Um, And it's like, yeah, possibly. But like, would I, like, I think my writing would suffer without it, you know? Can you name one Demi Lovato song? You know what? I can't. And it's weird because I work in, um, you know, I work in like eating this sort of treatment where like Demi Lovato is like just see- is is kind of like a goddess just for her life story. And it's fun. Like and people like really, really admire her, like regardless of her music. And I uh, like maybe I've heard some of these songs in passing, but I can't name one. I can't either. Uh, and that's my that's my fault, not hers. Well, you know, and, it, and that's not um, a judgment know. on her. You know, it's just. No, it, it is funny to me that there was a time in our culture, like where the hipster. There was a time in our culture. <laughs> a time in our culture, like where the indie hipster judging people for 
uh, liking pop music was like the biggest boogeyman that existed in music culture. And uh, I think it's come full circle because the indie hipster now might be the only one safe uh, from these stan armies. Because if if you don't even know about this stuff and you can't write about it, you know, then you're not yeah. going to be attacked. So you know maybe <laughs> maybe the indie hipster uh, is yeah. is going to be like the last person standing in this whole thing <laughs> once it all gets burned yeah. down by uh, by pop fans out there. Um, let's go to our mailbag segment. Uh, yeah, speaking th- of which, <laughs> yeah, this question comes from Drew from Cincinnati. I I almost said John from Cincinnati. You remember that show? Yeah, John from Cincinnati. Yeah, I do. Drew from Cincinnati. Right. It's the it's the sequel yeah. to that show. Um, classic classic indie cast mailbag name, by the way. Drew from Cincinnati. Exactly. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Thank you, Drew, for writing in. Uh, hi, Stephen and Ian. I really enjoyed your series on the best albums of 2011, and I'm and I am highly anticipating your 10 year anniversary episode about Muses: The Second Law. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, oh, I think we're locked into we that now. We have to. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna remember. Our stands are the type who oh, yeah. will remember. It's like, hey, remember when you like offhandedly mentioned this Muse album in an episode back in 2011 or 2021? Yeah, it's it's June of 2022. Uh, where the fuck is it? Yeah, you know, talking about um. I can't remember that name off the second law, but it's the one that sounds like Mario Kart to me. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have dropped a track name from the second law. Uh, off the top of your head, I would have like bowed down to you on this podcast. That would have been amazing. Yeah, I I know, man. I mean, you know, it, Black Holes and Rev- Revelations, I can name tracks off of, but yes, you know, the second law yeah. that that that's deep shit. Madness, we know. Supremacy, that's it. I knew it was like an. It's supremacy. That's oh, man. the one. Supremacy. That's it. Yes. Oh man, still there's... got it. <laughs> oh. Do you think that there's like an element out there who's in the muse that is like you know that kind of like. Uh, uh, might be kind of dark out there, you know, like that kind of like fascist. Do you think they have like a fascist following at oh. all? Because they have songs like Supremacy uh, think... and like that album Clones, <laughs> like which is yeah. Ha- I think they've definitely there's definitely like I don't know if like fascist is the right word. I think there's definitely like a Jordan Peterson uh, <laughs> kind of element to that fan base, but it's not because like people listen to Muse and become radicalized. I think that they're. It's like, you know, the Stan armies we talking about, like there's something within them that appeal like that appeals to that sort of or maybe just like the fact that like Muse is super fucking popular and they're going to oh, inevitably, yeah. Yeah. you know, rope it rope in some people with, you know, less than um ideal right ideal. Yeah, I'm not, I, I guess. I'm not <laughs> casting aspersions on Matthew Bellamy here. You know, uh, I'm not I'm not suggesting Oh god, we're going to hear from we're going to hear from Muse fans. I'm Look not suggesting. Done, I'm just saying that because <laughs> of the uh, you know, the triumphant nature of the music and and song titles like Supremacy, if there's a certain kind of person yeah. out there who would be attracted to them for that reason. Yeah. Is it <laughs> is Matthew Bellamy is he still married to Kate Hudson? I don't think no. He made an entire album I think about their divorce. Oh man, I got to hear that record. A Muse yeah, record? I review. I know that because I reviewed the last Muse album. It, so that one—that's <laughs> that's the, that's the only—that's the blood on the tracks. Then that's that's the divorce album. I, I guess. Yeah, it, I don't think I know I, that. Album. I guess. I guess it is. Oh, I gotta dig into that. Album. It, it, it definitely. It is definitely real. It exists. Uh, that's simulation theory. That's the one. Oh man. Okay, we got totally sidetracked from this letter. Uh, <laughs> Okay, going back to uh, Drew from Cincinnati. However, I was disappointed yes. that the Muse discussion didn't remind either of you of a different 2011 album you could discuss. I can only hope this is because Ooh. IndieCast will be doing a multi-episode deep dive into this album when it turns 10 this fall. I am, of course, talking about Coldplay's Milo Xylido. 
In, partic- ah. in particular, could Ian elaborate on how the stars align for him <laughs> to give this the highest score Coldplay has ever received from Pitchfork? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, was the staff yeah. just really <laughs> excited about it, or was there a larger conversation about how Pitchfork could afford to be nicer to Coldplay? I think Ian's review, which was huge for me as a 15-year-old <laughs> obsessed with both Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, and Milo oh Zalado back then. Shaping minds, Ian out there, <laughs> changing Drew from Cincinnati's life here, was right to assess Coldplay as a pop band rather than a less credible Radiohead. In hindsight, Milo Zalado sounds like Coldplay's Poptimism album, but I think it came out too soon to fully benefit from Poptimism's more generous critical evaluations of mainstream artists. I keep thinking about the warm reception the Killers received for imploding the Mirage in 2020. I wonder if Coldplay might have got the same for Milo Zalado, or if they have the potential to make a slick crowd-pleasing return-to-form album in the 2020s that would be similarly received. I'd love to hear what you guys think about this album and how it stacks up in Coldplay's discography, and if Milo or any of their earlier albums might have been even better received if released later in the 2010s. Thank you both for the great work on the pod. Best regards, Drew from Cincinnati. Okay, so... um <laughs> This is a, shout to Drew from Cincinnati, man. Like I'm, I'm feeling the love. Like oh yeah, to be uh, also to be like a 15 year old reading Pitchfork. Like I mean, I discovered that site like when I was in my like late teens, 20s. I don't know. Like I've been hearing like a weird amount of like, hey, I read this review when I was in like middle school or whatever, and I, I don't know, man. Like I kind of wish that they were like less plugged into cool music like I was when I well, was this like well well Drew like, though was reading your Coldplay review so he wasn't too uh, that's a good that's a good point he wasn't too cool for the room so um I was inspired to go into the pitchfork archives to look at previous Coldplay oh, reviews sick. and he's right Milo Zalado got a 7.0 that is the highest score um any Coldplay album has gotten um parachutes the first record got a 5.3 that's way too low. Rush of Blood got a 5.1. That's way too uh, low. Viva La Vida. That, that is a crime. Actually, okay, X and Y, that's the next record, got a 4.9. Right. Okay, now, I, I you think add we, a, got, you, we just have to... Con- you got to add a 3 to all I am these. like X and Y Hive. Yeah, I am X and Y Hive. Like, we are definitely doing a Coldplay episode at some point. You gotta, yeah, you got to add at least a 3.0 to all these scores. I think that, oh, that, should, that should at least get a 7.9. That X and Y kills me. Um, <laughs> Viva La Vida got a 6.9 also known as, as the yeah. that's, I, I like to refer to the 6.9 as the Dirtbags 10.0 um, <laughs> and uh, and then the albums after Milo Zalado Ghost Stories got a 4.4 that seems wow. too low that's not a great record yeah, it's not a good record no. it, it deserves, uh, I think it deserves like a high 5 5.8 uh, Head Full of Dreams right. 4.8 I can't even remember what that sounds like um I mean, Milo Zalado to me, I don't know how you feel. I mean, we know how you feel about the record. Would you have given it a higher yeah. score if they would have let you? Uh, probably not. I think what we're what what's going on here is that we've reached this like crest of where you didn't like, especially after like Viva La Vida, like it wasn't fun to punch down at Coldplay anymore. Uh. And you know, Miles Auto, it's it's a pretty good record. Oh like, yeah, it's it's the exact it's the exact point where they, you know, it, like the tide was starting to turn a bit for them critically, but like they were still making good music. Like Ghost Stories, I got into like a very involved Twitter argument about this album. Like some people will say, like, <laughs> no man, this is like the 
this is like they're around the world in a day or like this like weird outlier like breakup record in the middle of their discography that really needs a reassessment and then after that like a head full of dreams you know it's funny that like drew's mentioning like miles is cold place optimism uh moment because that's everything after this record like right. there's still some songs on milo that like kind of sounded like you know neon bible era arcade fire or the killers but like i mean they were doing songs with chain smokers after that point and by the way their last album got nominated for a grammy like i don't know if the if, if this is if that's a real accurate assessment of like what where cole plays at right now like well, maybe they're in like that beck that beck phase where everything that they'll like release an album and like you won't even remember it until it gets nominated for a grammy like Two years later. <laughs> the Grammy nomination, I don't know how much stock to put in that because that was, I think, widely perceived as like a what the fuck type nomination. Yeah, true. You know, um, I mean, yeah, for me, like I feel that after Milo Zawado, my interest in Coldplay recedes pretty dramatically. Right. But I, I agree yeah. with you because Milo Zawado is, it's like a concept record of sorts. And I, I, I forget the exact plot, you know, because there's, there's that... There's the, there's that first song on the record where he's talking about it, where, where the Lost Boys meet. So there's like this gang called the Lost Boys, and, uh, and I think Milo Zioto is like the main character on the album. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I need to. And then, and then Rihanna shit. Like Rihanna's honestly, right. man. Like I I, I, I would love song. for like Chris, yeah, Chris Martin to like explain in non-illusory terms like what the actual concept is. Like it's it's funny because like. The fact that uh, Drew mentions Muse in the same paragraph, it's like almost kind of like their Muse album. Yeah, although they're not as wonky as Muse. I mean, they still always had no, a good pop No, but it's sense. still like conceptual. Right. And, you know, it's got some sort of plot line, but in reality, it's just meant to be like kind of strip mined for singles for the next uh, performance. But I mean, as far as like my thoughts about, you know, this album as a whole, um, yeah, it, it's I at the time I I guess I was like the resident Coldplay expert, but you know the the fact that like Steve like f- went back and found those like old reviews, man. Like I sort of wish you know at, having just published a Sunday review, like I was kind of hoping that like Rush of Blood or Parachutes would be like kind of purged from the archives, so I get like a second shot at it. Oh yeah, um, those but, are way too. But low. you know, yeah, R- Rush of Blood, man. I'm just. And I probably won't be able to find a way to do like a 20th anniversary piece on it because like everyone's going to want to. But like 2020, watch out in 2025 because I am coming for X and Y, man. Like that is the Coldplay album I will defend with my life. Uh, I don't, uh, it's Coldplay sees it as their worst album. I like it the most. But, oh, yeah. Um, well, and friend of that, that, we will, we will, we will save that for the Coldplay episode. Friend of so. the podcast, Christina Squires, is a big X and Y fan. I've, I've had many DM That's conversations about Coldplay with her, <laughs> and she's a big X and Y booster. I would say Rush of Blood or Viva La Vida would be my, I feel like those yeah. are neck and neck for the best Coldplay record. And maybe that's yeah. a chalky thing to say. Uh, yeah, those are probably the most predictable things to pick as their best record. <laughs> but, you know, I, f- with good reason. I think they're the strongest. Uh, Milo Zalado, uh and Parachutes would be right behind those for me. I'm not as big on X and Y as you are. Is that is that like the emo yeah. Coldplay record? Is that like the emo sort fan of, Coldplay you know, record? I, I never thought of it that way, but I just can I, I just like uh, think of it from like a very um, happy time in my life. Um and so, but yeah, I think that Fix You is definitely like, 
definitely like arena emo. So is like talk, uh, the title track. Um, yeah, it, to me, it's like in a weird way, like Coldplay's like, it's like oh, their arena rock emo record, like not unlike, I don't know, the Rising Tide by Sunny Day Real Estate. Oh, wow. Like wow. So, what a connection there. Oh, God. We're, we're like, what we're going to turn this entire episode into, a, into an X and Y, okay. uh, you know, revisitation. But, you know, just Drew, we will definitely get to Coldplay in fall 2021. Yeah. Bad, all right. Yeah, man. We, wow. We, uh, we got really sidetracked on Muse and Coldplay there. Like we really, yeah. I, we don't have to do like a multi-episode. We, we might have to do like a mini series where we just talk about every Muse album because I, I want to talk yeah. about the divorce album. What's it called? Simulation theory. Simulation theory. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm. I, I think no, or or maybe that was drones. I don't don't quote me on that. I need to. I need oh, yeah. to. I need to go. Was back it drones or clone? I think I called it clones before. It's called drones. The mu- drones, yeah. I think drones might be the one that was informed by his uh, divorce. From- I remember I wrote something. Um, I wrote something kind of nice about drones for Grantland back in the day, and I, and I'm, I'm sure I got dragged for that by somebody. <laughs> R.I.P. Grantland. Oh God. Um. So let's get to the meat of our episode, talking about the music yes. festival season. We're starting to see announcements from festivals. We uh, didn't get a chance to talk about the Bonnaroo announcement that happened like literally, I think, ten minutes after we finished recording our previous episode. Um, but that was announced last week. Outside Lands was announced. Um, Coachella has already said that they're not going to do a festival this year, so they're not going to come back. Lollapalooza hasn't said either way what they're going to be doing. I suspect that they're going to do a a festival. Um, yeah, Chicago, I I remember last year, the Chicago festivals like really dragged their feet, um, as far, like before finally canceling, so... So, you know, before, you know, we're going to do some some poster analysis here of some, oh, yeah. some of the big festivals. But before we get to that, just looking at the festival season in general, like, where are you at with this? Because I know for me, like, I was already, like, before the pandemic, for several years before the pandemic, I was already feeling like, oh, I'm too old, really, to go to festivals. I'm over it. Yeah. I don't, I'm not really excited about it. And now I'm in the frame of mind where I'm like, well, I haven't seen live music in, you know, over a year. Yeah. I'm, I'm raring to go, like, for any show. Um, although I have to say that looking at these festival announcements, I, I, I felt less excitement than, than just, like, reassurance that, oh, like, kind of blah festival lineups are back again. <laughs> it feels yeah. comforting yeah but i wasn't really excited to see any of these festivals based on their headliners yeah I felt, it's same thing for me i mean for like you know someone who listens to as much emo as i do i find it hard sometimes to like really access how i'm feeling and that was particularly true with like looking at these festival lineups like where like they were it's like oh cool i can still make run the jewels jokes it was like it's like <laughs> When you spent, like, have you ever been in a situation, like, I I think of this, it's like when you're like, like, just so sure that you're going to like, like, I, I, this job is unsustainable. I I quit my job or I got to move out of this city or like, I just know this relationship is going to be over. And then like some time passes and then nothing happens and it's like, okay, we're back to normal. And like, you feel like sort of stupid for having all those thoughts that like things were going to be like momentously different. Like that's, I've thought a lot about, and actually Christian Holden from the hotel year brought this up as well, that with things getting back to, to normal, it's like, we sort of had a chance to really reimagine like what 
the music industry might look like. And, you know, maybe we didn't take the opportunity to do that. And we're already getting back to, you know, kind of normalcy, which in some way is comforting um, because, you know, we are a podcast that deals primarily in music and uh, we can only do so many retrospective episodes. Um, But yeah, I mean, like I thought it was just like, I thought there was going to be some like massive sea change of like who was going to be on these festivals because like, as just a, a viewer of music, I, this is like one of the metrics I use to figure out like who's popular in real life. Like who are the bands that are getting these unusually high placements um, who are probably liked by the people I know in Los Angeles who, you know, kind of sort of stop following new music. Like who, like who are the new glass animals? And the answer to that is glass animals. Well, you know? <laughs> I, I will say that I think it's too early to say that, well, everything's going to be normal, you know, because I think there's going to be efforts initially to just revert back to the way things are but i'm curious to see how these things are actually embraced by people uh, you know there's this i think there's this assumption that people are just raring to go to these festivals um i do wonder about the lingering psychological effect of of the uh, of the pandemic like are there going to be people who even after they're vaccinated they're still not going to feel comfortable in these places you know i i assume that there's going to be at least some people like that, you know, who are who are going to be rethinking their own approaches to these things. Because even if the industry is, you know, basically just like wants to pretend like the last year and a half didn't happen, um, doesn't mean that the audience is going to react that way. I mean, they might very well react that way. I I guess I don't know, but I'm I'm curious to see um, how this unfolds. I mean, let's look at the. Uh, uh, Bonnaroo poster for a moment. Uh, yeah. So the top headliners are on Friday you have Foo Fighters and Megan Thee Stallion. On ah, yes. Saturday you have Lizzo and Tame Impala, and Sunday you have Tyler the Creator and Lana Del Rey. And um, for one thing I have to say, like, there's a part of me that was a little bummed to see this at Bonnaroo because Bonnaroo is the jam band festival at least that's what they were originally known as and they've been making oh, this yeah. adjustment for a while but yeah there's not really any like jam bandy headliners you have my morning jacket mm. that's on the second line they're the most bonnaroo yep. like old school og bonnaroo thing yeah they are like the bonnaroo band in my mind and if you go a little like... deeper you see bands like goose on there you know so there's some jam band stuff on there but this seems like a lineup that could just <laughs> You could you could put this. I'm up. sorry, Steve. Can I pause for it? Can you tell like our IndieCast listeners who Goose is? Because I don't know who they are. Oh man! Well, this is a whole other conversation. Goose, just <laughs> just like a short, brief thing. They are the new young jam band. They're the new emerging jam band. They're very fish-like. The name, I guess, should have been uh, right. Clue. <laughs> and they're from Connecticut. Um, they're actually like a. I th- oh, there you go. I, I think they're a pretty good band. Actually, they're pretty good at what they do. There's actually not a lot of young jam bands that have been able to build and sustain an audience. I mean, for as like popular as that genre is, <laughs> there actually isn't that many like marquee acts and many of them are pretty old. So I think there's some yeah. excitement about them for that reason. But anyway, that's for a whole other episode. So anyway, I was a little sad to see that this lineup, you could just like transport this basically to Coachella and yeah. it would work there. I mean, so the um distinctiveness of Bonnaroo feels like that's completely gone at least in terms of the headliners yeah. you know maybe further down the bill they still have their roots represented yeah um am i wrong to think that lizzo <laughs> is a reach here 
I know she's Here's popular, thing, but like I don't know. Yeah, it's she's. It, that's a great question because um, you, like like you said, like this is a very Coachella uh, lineup in the in that it's got like Coachella. They Coachella's always got the rock act. Like it'll be like Muse sometimes. You know, a few years ago or the time where they had Jack White. Foo Fighters is like classic, classic, classic Coachella. Then you have like the popular rap artists like Megan Thee Stallion I, and so forth. And then like the in, the very popular indie band in like the arcade fire role, which Tame Impala, I think, is here. And so Lizzo, you know, one of the things that I always appreciated about the announcements of festivals, usually in like December or January of you know the year, is that you get a sense of like who's about to release a big album. And, you know, Lizzo is... Oh God, like she's an artist who is still very popular, I imagine. But like, I do want this is so wild to say, but it seems to me like from a 2019 feels like just like a completely different planet. Um, I don't doubt her popularity, but I see her as like associated with this time in the past that is just hard for me to access now. Um, but you know, I think that she'll do great. Like, I mean, it, I, I, I don't like who's going to show up to Bonnaroo. I don't know. Like also Lana Del Rey's a headliner. Like has she lost a lot of momentum with uh, her new record? Um, look, I think that the I think point she's of, got like, a pretty Bonnaroo... devoted fan base. I think. She, yeah, I feel like that that didn't feel like as much of a reach to me. I mean, Lizzo, again, she she's obviously very popular. I guess my first thought when I saw that was. Oh, did Ariana Grande not pick up the phone? Uh, did, oh. did did Cardi B not pick up the phone? Because presumably, pop stars are just sitting around right now. They haven't done anything for a while. I would think you'd have your pick, but I don't know. Maybe not. I would argue that like maybe those artists that you've mentioned are at, just waiting to do their own festival tours and like don't want to. I guess you know, kind of spoil it by doing um, you know a festival like amongst other people like. You know, they, they would rather just wait to do their own stadium tour and do that. Um, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the 2020 Bonnaroo, uh, it's it's not altogether different. Like the headliner, Lizzo and Heyman Paula and Lionel Del Rey were headliners on the previous Bonnaroo 2020. Uh, so was Miley Cyrus and uh, Vampire Weekend and Tool. So, um, yeah, it's oh, not man. altogether different than than what was happening in 2020, which I think this that's kind of what was to be expected, um, you know, from 2021. It's like, let's just put this one out there, see if it happens, and then 2022, come back hard, you know? You know, you mentioned Tool, and I was just thinking, like, how Maynard James Keenan had COVID twice. Did you see that story? What? Yeah, he, he, uh, he had COVID I twice. I don't even know how that happens. Dude, that's tool for you. I know exactly. Even like his COVID sickness was super elaborate and uh, yeah. had had weird time signature changes and stuff. Um, yeah. So you know, going back to like you know talking about like Tame Impala, I feel like last year when we talked about uh, their record from last year, which I'm blanking on the yeah. title of. That's like not a good sign. What's the what was slow it? rush? Come on, slow damn rush. man, we are really. Yeah, we are really memory holes. Well, like I mean, Muse the, and Tame Impala, we're like slipping here, man. Well, I, 
the Muse thing, I, I never knew. I never knew like their yeah, late stage album enough. titles, and I never knew the Demi Lovato album title. This the, the Tame Impala though. That's that's definitely a screw up on my part. The Slow Rush. Yeah. I mean, I feel like whenever we would talk about that record, it was always in the context of like, oh, Tame Impala really missed their chance to dominate festivals. You know, like with this record, because it really yeah. seemed like a record designed for that. And now I see, yeah. you know, they're a headliner at Coachella. They're also a headliner um, at Outside Lands. I assume there's a very good chance that if Lollapalooza does take place, that they'll that I see them as being a likely headliner there too. Tame Impala has this spot locked down for like the next 20 years if they <laughs> want it. Like they're going nowhere. <laughs> Tyler, the creator, is also a headliner at. Outside bands. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's got a new record coming out. Like, because the last one was. Yeah, I would assume so. You know, I think that he's still got the juice to be a headliner. I mean, uh, that I think he his uh, influence and his fan base is, you know, very diverse. And he could, like, he's a guy who you can, like, use to anchor a festival. Uh, you know, he's maybe not, like, the huge, the biggest, like, draw as, like, oh, this is now, like, a must see festival. But, like, He's someone who you can put at a festival and be like, yeah, we have a solid anchor for like, you know, Sunday night. It's crazy to think that he is now moving into like the legacy act part of his career. Legacy. That's he, right. Yeah, because man. we talked about Goblin in our 2011 yes. episodes that, you know, it's 10 years <laughs> ago. You know, Odd Future was bubbling up like a little bit before that. Uh, so, yeah, he, uh, he's course, moving yeah. into, you know, like the second decade of his career, which is insane to think about. Um that he's at that moment now. Um, also at Outside Lands, you have The Strokes, who they're mm-hmm. another band that uh, I guess they would still be touring on the back of the new Abnormal, but they just seem like a band uh, that is in that Foo Fighters class now, <laughs> I guess. Like where Yeah, they, need... they, are foo, they are straight Foo Fighters now. <laughs> you know, like you need like the old rock band that uh, still has cachet. Right. I mean, I think The Strokes are a lot. Yeah. You know, even with younger people, I feel like The Strokes are hipper than Foo Fighters are. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely, man. You could argue that even Interpol, like, could do in a pinch. Maybe not to the level of the Strokes, but, like, I still see, like, Strokes uh, t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing how that happened. I, in a way, I wonder how much the Voids have to do with that because I feel like the Voids actually have, (laughs) I'm serious, like, I feel like the Voids actually have a pretty strong, like, young fan base. I remember when I wrote about... Uh, uh, like their last record, and I was mostly positive, but it was, you know, just talking about like what a weird band that is. And I got emails from kids who were like, "I don't even know who the Strokes <laughs> are. I don't care who the Strokes are. I'm a huge wow. Voids head," which was surprising to me. Um, that's cool. I, I think that's 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 really cool. Exactly. And I think not that you get not not you getting like hate mail, <laughs> but like the fact that like Voids somehow like have established that strong fan base you know that's a, i think that's kind of cool yeah and i think you know and they're definitely more of like an internet-y type band too than than the strokes are yeah. so uh, it makes sense to me at some level um it's always fun to look at the second liners on these posters too oh that's where the action is because that the second the third that's the that's where the action's so at the, the second line uh on the Bonnaroo poster you have run the jewels of course that's chalk of course of course you have J- janelle yeah. monet you have my morning jacket which is huge chalk for yeah. for Bonnaroo. you have jeezy who i only know from oh g g easy i thought you said jay-z for oh, no, no. Yes. <laughs> g easy who i only know from music festival posters uh i yeah. don't know his music at all he 
Yeah, he's sort of like um, what would happen. Like in my like in correct me if I'm wrong. Like in a, like IndieCast listener, but he was sort of like what would happen if like Machine Gun Kelly never went pop punk. Like oh, I think right. he fashioned himself as sort of like a male Lana Del Rey. <laughs> But like as a rapper, no, I'm not. I'm I'm serious, no, man. No, like, I just like this makes, combination like, of like reference points. You have Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah, and you have so that's that's G. That yeah. So I guarantee you, like in ten years or whatever, there's going to be a a ten year of twenty year fifteen whatever like reassessment of G Easy. He's like like this is what like a sixteen or like a fourteen year old kid like listens to and like will become a music critic and defend with his life. So good. You know, shout shout to that future. <laughs> so, and then you have Jason Isbell, who definitely seems like like course, a second liner yeah. at Bonnaroo. I wonder if he'd be a second liner now at Coachella, or if Coachella would even want to book him. Uh, I think it's 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 maybe yeah. I mean, I look. I think Coachella does still have to. I think that there's still like that golden voice, um, rock roots, right aspect to them, where they they might get like the. I don't want to say like a token rootsy act like Jason Isbell, but like maybe the one representation. Because let's let's face it, it's still Los Angeles, you well, know, and people, Amer- like indie folk or like Americana based, like that stuff still will, is enormously popular out there. And he's a good draw, and obviously in Tennessee, yeah, it, it, you know, Bonnaroo taking place yeah, in Tennessee, also, he's yeah. going to draw huge there. Uh, yeah, Phoebe Bridgers, yeah. Uh, there yeah. who. Uh, the big leveling up. Yeah, she's leveling up. I, I know you asked in our outline if 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 I thought that she could headline Pitchfork, and I think absolutely at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think she could definitely be a Pitchfork headliner. You have Incubus in the second line. Yes. Incubus. Yes. Like, jam bandy. Kind of jam bandy. Yeah. Very good fit with Bonnaroo. That, yeah, they, More so than Deftones. They're the, they're the jam band new metal band. They're bridging that gap. Which you wouldn't yes. expect to be to be bridged, and then you have little baby, uh, Leon Bridges, uh-huh. Young the Giant, Young the Giant. That's another just total festival band. I could not name one yeah. Young the Giant song, but I see them on every I review poster. I gave them, <laughs> yeah, I gave them a negative review back in like 2011, and uh, yeah, they're just like one of those bands like Cold War Kids, and I, this is a topic for another episode of like that whole wave of like just weirdly. Um, Weird. I don't want to say like resistant, but like just a band with a lot like Maroon Five like longevity. You know where they just they're like almost like cor- the new corporate rock. How, how there? Yeah. Go. <laughs> well, you, you get like Young the Giant, Portugal the Man. Uh, yeah, yeah. All those kind Cold of bands. War Kids. Yeah. Like all the but all yeah, Foster the People. All the, yeah. All the bands like with the in the middle of their band name, which I always find to be very strange. Isn't there another band like that? Like, what's another? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's the the head and the. I mean, but then we like cross over into the head and the heart type action, and there's definitely. Ugh, I don't know, man. Like, this is gonna bother me. So, but yeah, also there's one kind of like Leon blues rocky band that I saw open up for the Black Keys, like. Oh, Lonely the Brave. Lonely the Brave. No, that's not it, but that's another band. Oh, God. Is that Lonely the Brave? But that's another one, too. There's some other band. Maybe they don't have a no, the but... on their name. Um, this is going to But I thought me. it was like something the something. I don't know. I'm sure there's millions of... <laughs> Cage the Elephant? Cage the Elephant. That's it. Cage the Elephant. Yes. Which, yeah. again... Another band, another band that is like a mainstay on the second. Yeah, line. which... 
I remember being blown away. Someone explained the band name to me. I always thought it was an elephant named Cage. So it was Cage, <laughs> the elephant. But it's it, it's it's uh you know they're talking about caging an elephant. That's the right. right? Or did I get? Yeah, no, like no. When, when I was living in Kentucky, man, that was like the band that everyone would brag about, like having seen on, like, oh yeah, man, back when I was living in Bowling Green, Cage the Elephant, like they would play this bar, and so I I I have quite a bit of Cage the Elephant lore. <laughs> they are a perfectly serviceable modern rock band, like they are exactly what we're talking about when it comes to like Young the Giant and so forth, and like I wonder if like people are gonna eventually come around on them, like the way that. You know, like you wrote about Stone Temple Pilots recently, where there's just going to be this like hardcore defenders of like the alt rock that existed, you know, within like this 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 past ten years. There's got to be, there's got to be some yeah some music critic right now who grew up on Cage the Elephant and knew that it was never about an elephant named Cage. They knew from the <laughs> beginning. So like Portugal, the man is that a man named Portugal? Because because uh, Portugal isn't a, uh, it's not a verb, you know. I I don't even know what that, is, but you know, shout out to them. Still getting, <laughs> still still feel it. Still like that, they're gonna be eating off that for the rest of their lives. Oh yeah, you know, good. And they and, and they, you know what, they were around for like a decade or more before that song hit. Yeah, they so. were like a psychedelic. I think I reviewed rock one of their albums, weren't they? they? Yeah, I, I reviewed one of their albums on Stylus. That's how old Portugal the man is. Shout out to Stylus magazine. Wow. So anyway, it's going to be interesting with these music festivals. I guess we'll see how it unfolds. Curious to see. Yeah. It'd be really funny if Lollapalooza announces like right after this episode because we've been speculating on yeah. whether they're coming back. I think they are. Yeah, the tours we'll are the, the the tours are coming fast and heavy, man. Like so I I think there's momentum like uh surrounding these things where like the more people see it, like the more they're going to, you know, start to feel uh, you know, like secure and saying, well, you know, here's ours too. The same way where we saw like Bully announce a tour, then uh, Julian Baker, and now Japanese Breakfast announcing a tour. So the the ball is rolling. Yep, and I personally can't wait to see Glass Animals and Young the Giant and all these great <laughs> bands at a festival near me. Yeah. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so the record that um, you know I, I, I want to talk about today is by a band called Genghis Tron. Now, um, as gyms have started to open again, like at least in California, like you can go indoor gyms now. Uh, you know, more work. Like I've required more workout music, and you know, Genghis Tron's a band I've been aware of. For a while, like I thought they were just like some kind of like technical metal band, um, but they, I think they completely rechanged their lineup. Uh, they're associated with the Armed, which is a band I'm really, really into now. Their record comes out next week, um, and they put out an album called Dream Weapon. And this, like, I was just surprised by how clean and catchy this record is. It's like a almost like psychedelic metal, but like electronic. It reminds me of like what might have happened if like battles that band like their albums that happened after mirrored were like a lot more poppy and for lack of a better term like less wanky um it's or it's like the armed with clean vocals um it's it's a record that kind of bridges the gap between like pretty uh electronic music but also like heavy 
uh, instrumental prog. And um, I mean, it's on Relapse Records, so that should let you know like what sort of audience is into. And it's kind of record that also, I feel like it's not given enough um, of a platform because it doesn't really have an audience that is obvious. Um, but if you're the type of person who wants to listen to, I don't know, workout adjacent music that isn't like super aggro, uh, Genghis Tron Dream Weapon. It, it, it's one of my more pleasant surprises of uh, this past year. Are we going to talk about that arm record next week? I feel like we have to. Oh, we got to talk. I got a lot of fun. Like I interviewed them for about like literally about their meal plans and weightlifting. Oh, That's all we talk. I mean, are they are they are they called the armed because they have huge arms? No, dude. But Clark Huge, a sneak preview, the bodybuilder that you see in the videos, he's always been in the band. So that is not an actor. I, all of them are I, just massively ripped. I'm like, holy, holy. Well, my yeah, gosh. And they all look like Glenn it, Danzig. I think. In that band. Yeah, today, I think today um, my interview with them goes live uh, where we basically talk about their meal plans. But oh, um, man. yeah, it's, yeah, 20, like the Genghis Tron is a good sort of cool down record uh, compared to Ultra Pop, which we'll talk about hopefully next week. But yeah, and, and they and they share band they share they share band members as well, so it makes sense. You know what that else? Genghis Tron. What's that? I was gonna say, you know what else drops next week is oh, Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Oh, oh yes, Greta Van Fleet. Uh, uh, we're yes. definitely talking about that record. Uh, I can't wait. Um, I'm. I want to talk about a band uh, from Chicago. It's a four piece band called Floaty. That's mm. I E at the end. Uh, they dropped nice. their debut album called Voyage Out last month and. Uh, I've been really enjoying it. It's one of those records where in the morning, if I just want to put on a record and I don't know what to put on, this is an album I've been putting on uh, pretty consistently lately. And uh, I've seen this band described uh, as math rock, which I think is broadly true. There's like a lot of tricky tempos and like, you know, interesting time signatures in the music. But I, I feel like this band is like also like a lot poppier and catchier than a lot of math rock. I feel like, you know, you think of math rock generally as being uh, music that can just seem convoluted for the sake of being convoluted. Uh, but uh, this is a band that I feel like they put songwriting first. And mm. whatever is going on instrumentally with this band, it's never uh, at the uh, sort of sacrifice of melody or or having good succinct song structures um at times i almost get like a sea and cake vibe from this record maybe that's because they're from chicago i'm getting like a post-rock thing i want to do the post-rock math rock thing uh but again this is just like a really enjoyable record really enjoyable indie rock record if you're looking for just good old-fashioned indie rock the way they used to make it uh this is a record (laughs) that i think you'll enjoy so it's called voyage out Band's called Floaty. That's again F L O A T I E. Uh, and uh, yeah, go to the, go to their band go to their Bandcamp page. Check out the record. Uh, it's really good. So uh, that does it for this episode of IndieCast. Uh, I guess we kind of gave a preview of what we're doing next week. I, yeah. I feel like those records we have to talk about, as well as <laughs> other things. I'm sure that will come up between now and then. Uh, Thank you for listening to this episode. We'll be back with more reviews, news, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.